get back on. Good morning. We're in uh, the book of Joshua, been in a series, Be Strong and Courageous. And uh, this morning we're going to be in chapter 8 of Joshua. The reading today starts like this. Then Joshua built an altar. Then Joshua built an altar. But what's interesting is chapter 7, which we looked at, that was when the ban or the devoted things that were taken and reserved for God when Jericho fell. The people were not to take any of that for themselves. And in chapter 7, we realized, we learned from reading chapter 7 that that was violated, that a man named Achan broke that faith that trust with God and took items which were holy unto God or reserved for God and God's property alone. He took that for himself. And then the people went up and they attacked I and they were routed. They were driven home and some 36 of the forces were killed and it was a staggering defeat and Joshua fell on his face and he worshiped the Lord and they covered themselves with dirt. He and the elders and the leaders of the people, they could not figure out what had happened when it was revealed to them that someone within the tribe had broken faith. And so through a series of revelations, tribe by tribe, Family by family, Achan was identified, and that was rectified. And then God led the people against I, and there was this incredible victory. That's what's happened. And that's where we are at verse 29 of chapter 8. And then it says, then Joshua built an altar. And Joshua, what we don't realize between verse 29 and 30, aside from the word then or something like at that time, we don't realize that the people have been led by Joshua from I, from the victory over I. They've been led some 25 miles north and west to a place between two mountains, Gilgal is one, and it is there on one of those mountains with Shechem, the city of Shechem, between those mountains. There on Gilgal, Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel. And he himself, at Mount Ebal, he himself fulfilled what Moses had required of him and the people, which we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. When we read our verses, it's almost like, in a way, we're reading the essence 
of Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. What it essentially says is that Joshua built an altar with uncut stones. He built an altar with uncut stones. And we read that in chapter 8, verse 31. And then Joshua inscribed on the stones. In other words, he wrote on the stones the law of Moses, which is the law of God. And we read about that in chapter 8, verse 32. And what it reflects is Exodus chapter 24, verses 4 through 7, where they there built an altar with uncut stones. And then we learn that Joshua read every word, every word of the law to the people. And that's in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 8. And we learn that it was to bless the people. The reading of God's word is to bless the people. So here it is that immediately after the violation of things devoted to God, the revelation or the detection of Achan and the rectification or correction of what the people had done because they would have all been punished together because before the Lord they are as one people. Once that's corrected and I is then defeated, they immediately move some 25 miles north and west to the very heart of the, the promised land or Canaan to the very center, the heart of the land. And there, Joshua builds an altar. And it is renewing their loyalty to the Lord. Joshua, in renewing their loyalty, himself models not only his own heart before the people, because everything they're doing, Joshua initiates. Joshua leads them in it. You know, it's like if your child was in the back seat when we would travel from Northern California to Southern California, the kids, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because they have no sense of where we're going, how much time or ground we have to cover. And Joshua leads the people and then they observe him and he models to the people what he wants them to exemplify, to show in their lives. He models his own heart, and in a sense, he models the heart of the people toward God. And the site, as I said, was at the very center. You could call it the heart of Canaan between these two mountains, which were very important, and the city Shechem between them. Shechem which was the site of Abraham's very first altar in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. He built an altar at this place known as Shechem between Ebal and Gilgal. And then Jacob built a well there in Genesis 33, 18 and 19, and he purchased land there 
for his tent and his posterity. And then Joseph, his tomb is there. And so this is an important site, location, not only in the history of God with Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and the other patriarchs and now the people of God through Joshua, but it is at the very heart of the land that God is giving to the people. Now, all of this talk about sacrifices and altars is not something that we're intimately or actually acquainted with. We don't, we don't offer uh, sacrifice of animals, but we do use the language of sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you all in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. And then Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. Proper worship to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, to regard yourself as something totally devoted to the Lord. And he says that's the proper thing to do. Not just a little part to devote ourselves completely. That's proper and true worship. And then in First Peter, Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, listen to this. Peter says, as you come to Christ, so imagine you're approaching Christ. If, if he were in a location, <laughs> see, and even though through the Spirit, we know we are always with Christ and Christ is always with us. But there is a time, if not throughout the day, we need to be aware that sometimes we have to think spatially in terms of approaching Christ, to not take him for granted, to come before him as someone who owes him everything. And so that's what Peter draws upon when he says, as you come to Christ, and then he calls Christ, this is interesting, the living stone, the living stone. He says, Christ the living stone, we've heard of Christ referred to as the cornerstone. Here it's the living stone. He says, when you come to Christ the living stone, whom others rejected, so this is not the stone that we rejected. This is the stone that we regard. This stone is chosen and priceless in God's sight. So when we come to this stone, the living stone, the stone that is chosen and priceless in God's sight, he, Peter says, you yourselves as living stones. So now he calls us living stones. As living stones, we are being built. You could almost imagine being built into an altar, but there is no altar anymore. There is a house, and so we are being built into a house, a house of the Lord, and where we serve as 
priests. We are part of the priesthood of this house being built by living stones brought to and added to and accumulated with and upon the living stone of Jesus Christ. So that we might offer I'm still reading 1 Peter, so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ that are pleasing to God. So what I'm trying to build a case for here between the Old Testament and the New Testament is kind of a foundation for us as we look at closer at Joshua and the notion of an altar and what is said about this renewal ceremony near Shechem on Mount Ebal to rededicate, to, to renew, to recommit the people to the Lord. This is about, I would say, God saying to his people, just like God saying to us, Make your heart my altar. Make your heart my altar. We just sang a song in which there was a line that I had to, I had to stop singing and write it down. You're the one who guides my heart. You're the one who guides my heart. We'll see as we spend a few minutes in Joshua that the altar represents the place of meeting, as it were, the place of God's presence. When we come to that place, we regard that as a place where we are, so to speak, face-to-face and naked before the Lord, and we are to come as though we are suppliants, humbly, humbly before the Lord. So let me read Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 through 35. Just five verses. Chapter 8. It would help if I was in chapter 8. At that time, or then, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, burnt offerings, here reflect whole burnt offerings. So everything that is offered to the Lord is consumed by the Lord, and the smoke and the scent of it is pleasing unto the Lord. But peace offerings are like fellowship offerings. Portions of the sacrifice are completely offered to the Lord, but the rest of the sacrifice becomes the basis of the people joining in fellowship over the meal that is provided by that part of the sacrifice. So it's called a peace because the people come together on the basis of that sacrifice. That sacrifice forms a focal point of meeting and unity and oneness and fellowship. 
That's a peace offering or a fellowship offering. Verse 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote, I used the word inscribed, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses which he had written. And all Israel, all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges, So all the kids, nobody was dismissed to Sunday school, stood on opposite sides of the Ark of the Covenant, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the cursing. In other words, if you do it, it's for a blessing. If you defy it, it's for a curse. That Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So we are to make our hearts the altar of the Lord. Make your heart my altar, says the Lord. And we do that by building an altar with uncut stones. We do it by inscribing on that altar of the heart, God's word. And we do it realizing, regarding that altar as a place of blessing, a source of blessing. Let's look at uh, verse 31, an altar of uncut. We could supply, instead of uncut, we could say living stones. I, there's an expression that is, I think, beautiful. It's called living, living water. Have you ever heard that? And if you're over in Israel, uh, if you were ever to engage in a washing or in a Jewish mikvah, these baths in which they would purify themselves. Those mikvahs or any bath, especially if it was to purify, it had to be of living water. And you might say, well, is that, you know, does it have special minerals and body restoring chemicals or something like that? Special salts or, no, a living water is a running water. It's fresh water because it's moving water. And that's living water. Well, I think living stones refer to uncut stones. In other words, they're not stones that are in any way defiled by human alteration. In other words, they're not reshaped. They're not hammered or tooled or chiseled. There's something about the Lord. He just wants it to be as real as possible. He doesn't want these stones to first be the source of, of human accomplishment. And you know, it is sometimes that we can, we can take such pride, I help make the altar, etc. No, this is the Lord's altar. And so he doesn't want any of the stones affected. In fact, we're told in, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, the same word for uncut, and by uncut, it is not to be 
changed with any tool. The word tool there is the word, I mean, it means a tool there, but it is also the word that is most commonly translated sword. Also for axe. Those are instrument, an axe is an instrument of destruction as well as a sword. So maybe there's something in that, but apart from those things, it's not like there's some scholar somewhere that knows absolutely for sure what uncut means, but it's not to be in any way changed by a human tool that is used for other things. So I think it is a beautiful thing. It's kind of a form of of saying these untooled stones that are not fashioned by human hands are what I want you to make this altar of because I want it to be in some way, in a sense, unadulterated or changed by anything we do. I want it to be wholly a place that is unto the Lord. And as I said in First Peter, we, we are called living stones. It, our salvation, in a sense, is, is untooled by any human means because Christ himself is the sufficiency for our salvation. It's nothing that we add to it. That's so important to realize. Sometimes it's so easy for us. We feel better. I understand that. I guess that's just part of our psyche, that if we, if we do sacrificial things, it, it makes us feel more fit and worthy. But unfortunately, we can also become prideful. And then we mix God's salvation, which is all of grace and not our accomplishments. We mix it with those accomplishments. And sometimes we start to weight our own accomplishments and then we compare. And then we can even begin to police other, others who aren't, aren't as fit as we are, aren't as well shaped in our faith and in our performances and in our righteousness and so forth. Living stones, I think, is a witness to the fact that we are a part of this building because of Christ and Christ alone. But there's something else about an altar that I want us to appreciate, and I'm trying to um, emphasize that the altar isn't just a place of sacrifice. It's, It's a place that is a place of meeting, a place that is designated as a place of God's presence. And of course, we already think that way about the heart, but I want you to understand that I'm not imposing that. It's from the scripture. And there's a chapter that is sometimes not read in this regard, but it's Joshua chapter 22. In Joshua chapter 22, this very altar which Joshua builds almost becomes the, the cause of war between the tribes. If you were to look in the back of your Bible at a map of what we sometimes call Palestine or the Holy Land, it's divided by a river right down the middle. That river is the Jordan River. And on the east side of that river is the half-tribe of, of, of Joseph's two boys, Manasseh, and then there's Gad, and there's Reuben. The whole east side, which, by the way, today is 
partly the country of Jordan. But on that east side, all up and down are the three tribes that did not cross over with the people, but went with them to fight the battles. And when you get to the end of Joshua, they, they go home. They lay down their weapons. They've all distributed the land of Canaan to all the tribes, and now they go home to carry on their lives. But when they got to the Jordan, which is this natural barrier, when they got to the Jordan, before they crossed over, they built what is called in chapter 22 an impressive altar. Not that kind of a cool word, you know? An impressive altar. It must have been very eye-catching. But it became kind of the the bone of contention because the other tribes wondered what's going on the altar is the altar that Joshua built on Mount Ebal near Shechem in fact they they even referred to it kind of as the altar at Shechem what's going on with this other altar are you in competition are you trying to do something other than worship the one true God, the God of Israel? Are you starting to do your own thing? So they, they sent the priest, the high priest, Phinehas, and he and a delegation from the ten tribes on the west side of the Jordan River, on the west bank, if you will, they sent the ten heads and the elders and the chiefs of the ten tribes along with Phinehas, and they had this meeting. And they talked about that altar that they built, that impressive altar. And it's interesting what it says there. In verses 26 and 27, let me just read it to you real quick. In verse 26 and 27, It says, for the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad and then the half-tribe of Manasseh. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. And what is is really the bone of contention is the the half-tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben on the east side of the Jordan, they wanted to be identified, so they built that altar to signal. In fact, in the last verse, it's called the altar of witness. And the whole contention was that the tribes on on the east side wanted to always be remembered by this altar as the part of the same people on the west side. They wanted it to be an identification, a witness. In fact, in verse 24, it says, we were worried or we feared. That was the reason we built it. We feared that all of you on the west side would forget in generations to come that we belong to the one God with you. And so we built that altar to be identified with you and to let it be known that we serve the one God, the one true God of Israel. 
In fact, in verse 22, it says, we thought there would be this question, and this is our answer to that question. What relationship do you have to the Lord God of Israel? So it's a beautiful thing to think about that because your heart, if it's an altar, it can be a witness to the Lord in your life. If your heart really is an altar that says, this is my altar, Lord, in which all will know that I serve you and that you are the one true God of my life, that needs to be known to future generations. And we show our heart by the kind of person that we are. We show it by the word of God that is written on that altar. In verse 32, Joshua wrote on the altar a copy of the law of Moses. Um, I was reminded of Proverbs 3, 1 through 6. This is kind of beautiful. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years. See, there's the blessing. They will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness, there's the very nature of the law, love and faithfulness, to be a trustworthy person, to be a noble person, a good person, a dependable person, a merciful person, a kind person, a forgiving person. This is the substance and heart, the chesed and emeth of God. He says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. That's inspired by what Joshua does when he writes the law on the altar. And he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Here's the thing, we, th- we think of all the laws that we might have to keep, but I just want to remind you, in Christ, we have one law. In Galatians chapter 5, if you haven't read that lately, I would encourage you to read the entire chapter. It's not that many verses, but I'm going to summarize. I'm just going to work my way through it. it. You need to read it, but let me just give you some of the highlights of Galatians 5, 1 through 26. In Christ Jesus, Paul says, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. I'm the circumcised, you're the uncircumcised. Or you're the uncircumcised and you're the circumcised. There is, it, it doesn't matter. There is neither. Those, anything like that counts for nothing Paul says, the only thing that counts for something is faith working through love. Now, that's a verse you should memorize. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. That isn't something I made up. That's something Paul wrote. That's powerful. That's in verse 6. Then in verse uh, verse 13, Paul says, through love serve one another. 
So the question becomes, oh, there's so many laws, I don't know what to do. Or are you struggling with guilt this morning? Are you feeling like you're not good enough? Or you are full in your mind and heart of your failures and shortcomings? We're all nasty sometimes. We all have thoughts that we are ashamed of. We wouldn't want anyone to know just how selfish we are. But God knows, and that's why we have Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient to make us holy, to break the bond of sin in our lives. Because Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. He says, can a leopard change his spots? Obviously not. That wickedness stains us that deeply. But God has broken that bond through his love because there's no more demands His sacrifice is sufficient to make you completely whole and pleasing unto the Lord. If you understand that and begin to appreciate that, then you begin to understand God's grace just causes us to fall on our face in gratitude and thanksgiving. That's how rich his grace is. But then when we fully appreciate it, we take it to heart, and we start to live as those who Paul in Galatians is saying, you are really free. This is true liberty. Then that grace begins to motivate, generate the energy of your life. And it is an energy of love because that's the pure power of God that defeats death and rises in victory to newness of life. And that's why verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's living out the gospel at work in our ethic of life. That's in verse 14. And then verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Not at all. And then verses 22 and 23. What comes out of us is something remarkable. And you might think about this. Where else could you find such power? Such life-changing beauty than the Spirit. Because the Spirit's fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, no law can produce that, only the Spirit of God. And so it is with blessings we regard our heart as an altar unto the Lord in verse 33. And we're told, as Moses commanded at the first, it was for the blessing of the people. I have a hunch that we don't think of God's law as a blessing because it ends up being a curse when we fail it. But as we saw in Galatians 5, there is no law for those of us who are completely changed in Christ. This last Tuesday in the morning, I was driving in and I happened to be listening to NPR. Don't hate me. But I like NPR myself, but... There was an interview with a law professor, Kim Wheely, 
And uh, she's written several books. She's just written a book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. I wasn't paying close attention. I was actually driving, you see. But then I heard this. She said, the law is based on a value system. The law encodes values. And if we remember that what God asks of us, and we saw it, love, love your neighbor as yourself. When God asks that, and it is the one law, it's because it encodes the very value that God prizes. And out of love, all these other things proceed. Courtesy, kindness, ethical action, right thinking, and so forth. That's a blessing. That's a blessing indeed. Don't follow your heart is a devotional we're reading by John Bloom. Don't follow your heart because the heart, he says, is where we concoct all of our opposition to the Lord. But when we make our heart an altar to the Lord, then it becomes the source of God's greatest work. And it is a beautiful thing in Christ. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to sing a final song. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how it all so beautifully goes together to honor the gospel, what you've done for us in Christ. And we praise you in his name. And we thank you for the new life that we get to live each and every day because of you. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said,